This week, I had to take my car to the mechanic. And I've told you before, this is kind of an embarrassing experience for me uh, because I have really no manly skills. I cannot fix anything. And I know a lot of people will try to tell me, like, you can do this. You're, you just need to watch some YouTube videos and you'll be able to figure it out. And I just don't think that you understand my ineptitude. I am the guy that has to go into the shop and reproduce the noise that my car is making to try to explain what's happening and then the problem is the guys in the shop inevitably start throwing out terms and 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 parts and and processes in the car uh, like like, and and they're like if if it's that then it's probably this is probably what's going on and if that happens then that's going to lead to this and I'm like yeah I mean that's that's what I was thinking that's what I was going to say I have no idea what they're talking about okay I, I have to go and ask them But when I go into my mechanic, maybe this happens to you, I get this entire diagnostic report. You ever got one of those? It's awesome. It's glorious when you see all this red highlighted and all the red stuff is, this is the stuff that you got to take care of, all right? You must replace all of these fluids or you're going to be in big trouble. Uh, Or maybe you get some really critical problem, like you've got to address this, you can't ignore it. Like sure we can't force you to take care of this today you can you can risk it but you can't afford to get this wrong mark chapter 9 is one of those warnings mark chapter 9 jesus is going to give us some really uh shocking statements that are meant to impress on us the severity and the urgency of being real disciples and one of the things that he needs us to understand this morning is that sin can destroy you and the hard part in this is that that this is a reality for all of us that i've got sin in my life and i know that you've got sin in yours and because i care about you as a pastor it kind of pains me Uh, to think that there are things, I I wish this wasn't the case, but there are things that are going on in your lives right now, things that you are allowing in your lives that are going to destroy you, that are going to cause you to suffer, that are going to leave you empty, that are going to rip apart your homes, it's going to ruin your relationships, it's going to damage the church, and it's going to harm the reputation of Christ. Sin destroys. That's what it does. We must deal with it. And if we don't, if we just kind of let it go, he's going to help us understand that the consequences are way more than you want to pay. And so because we all still have sin in our lives, don't skip this, don't ignore this. You can't afford to get this wrong. Mark chapter 9, starting in verse 42. You follow along with me as I read. Verse 42, he says, Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. (laughs) How do you handle that? He says, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off! It's better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unknown quenchable fire and if your foot causes you to sin cut it off 
It's better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Now salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? So have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Let me give you a big idea of this text. I hope that this is going to be impressed upon you today. That suffering for Christ is better than suffering for your sin. Do you know that? Suffering a little bit here is way better than having to pay the consequences and suffer for your sin. Father, I pray that as we open up your word, these are, these are heavy things that you want to say to us this morning, so I'm praying that we're going to submit to that. I'm praying that we're, going to, we're, we're not going to be afraid to read what you've said to us. And apparently we need this as your church. I need this as your son. We want to be obedient to you. Lord, we don't want this. We don't want to face these consequences. We certainly don't want to see the ones that we love facing these. And so, Lord, I'm praying that as we hear these kind of difficult, challenging words, would you help us to look to Christ? Would it be seasoned with grace? Would we exalt you and rejoice in the gospel today? I pray that you get the glory in it. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, let me give you three um, warnings that we see in this text to uh, disciples. Okay, I, this is, I hope this is really clear. Here's one. Note this. Um, first thing we see, don't cause others to sin. So he says, verse 42, don't cause others to sin. He says, whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin. Now, now who are these little ones that he's talking about? It kind of sounds like he's talking about kids, Right? Uh, it sounds like he's talking about like the little ones, the little tykes that are running around. And you might think that because uh, Jesus has actually just used a, a kid, a, a child, as a visual example. Back in verse 36, we saw that he took a child and he put him in the midst of them. And so it seems like the concept is connected here. And yet he clarifies for us in the verse. He says, uh, not just these little ones, but these little ones who believe in me. So he's talking about believers. Likely talking about maybe new believers or believers that are still kind of immature. Basically what he's saying is, don't cause believers in Jesus to sin. Now, what, what, what does that mean? Well, well, the word there, to cause to sin, is the Greek word skandalizo, where we get our word scandalize. It's a scandal. It means to cause someone to, to stumble or to cause them to fall away. Basically, you're trying to wreck someone's faith in Jesus. Now, I know like everybody here is like, I don't do that. Like, I'm not, who's, who's trying to do that? Why, why, would, why would anybody do that? Well, well, think about the context. We've got to go back to what we saw last week, what just happened right before Jesus teaches on this. Uh, the context is that John and his disciples, I don't know if you remember this, they, they saw this guy wearing a Team Jesus jersey going out and casting out demons, and, but he wasn't following the disciples, and so they come up to Jesus thinking they're going to get a pat on the back. They're like, Jesus, we saw this guy. He's trying to cast out demons in your name, so we tried to stop him. Why did they try to stop him? Well, really, because they were jealous. That guy was able to do what they were really struggling to do. 
And they're exclusive. They've got this, we don't accept people that are not in our circle. They gotta be part of us. You gotta be one of us. The reason they said no, the reason they're trying to stop them is because of pride. Do you know that spiritual pride actually pushes people away and it refuses to celebrate when God is working in and through someone else? I know this is what we looked at last week, but just kind of imagine, put yourself in that man's shoes who's casting out the demons, right? Here you are, God is working powerfully in you and through you, and you're seeing these people set free from demonic oppression in the name of Jesus, only to have Jesus' disciples reject you and tell you to quit. That's what he says. Don't cause them to sin. Don't try to wreck their faith. Now, what, what, what does this look like? I tried to imagine, like, what, what does this mean for us? Because likely uh, you're not intentionally going around plotting, like, whose faith can I wreck today? But think about this. Think, think about this. When, when, when you think so highly of yourself, and when you put yourself first, you can really hurt your brothers and sisters in Christ especially uh, those who have a a simple faith or somebody that's kind of new to the faith. This looks like uh, dismissing uh, the work that God is doing in somebody's life. And they they may not be as mature as you. They may uh, may not have been walking with Christ as long as you. They may not know as much as you know. But think about the damage that it can do when when we just kind of discredit the work that God is doing in them as though that's not really that impressive. I've heard better. Or it also looks like uh, discouraging someone from being a part of God's mission. Because what if, what, if, what if the new guy, that brand new believer, is way more excited and way more bold about sharing his faith at work than you are? Don't, don't dump cold water on that. I, I realize that it, you know, we, might feel some, we might feel some guilt, we might feel some shame. He's kind of putting us to shame. But in that moment, that pride is going to tempt us to squelch the enthusiasm. To try to bring those people down to our level so we feel better about ourselves. It looks like dismissing the work God's doing or discouraging them from being a part of it. And also it just means despising somebody. That we would um, turn, turn them away from being a part of our inner circle, our group, our church. Now come on, like we want so badly here to be a church where there is a welcome without judgment. And we're not turning people, we're not pushing people away because they're not part of us and we're not really comfortable with them. This is not a closed circle. We want to be inviting. Especially those that might have immaturity, might be new to the faith. He says, don't try, to, don't try to wreck their faith. Don't cause them to sin. If you do, here's the consequence. It, it would be better for that man if a great millstone was around his neck and he was thrown into the sea. Okay, so the benefit of this imagery is that uh, you don't even really need to know exactly what a millstone is to understand the effect and to get Jesus' point. That's a really good illustration. Jesus is the master at this. Basically, what he's saying is it'd be better for you to be poured into concrete and thrown into the ocean. That's that's a little dark for Jesus, isn't it? I mean, that kind of sounds... 
you know, uh, it, it sounds almost like something the mob boss would get into. It's kind of disturbing. What Jesus is doing is giving us a graphic warning of the judgment against spiritual pride. He's trying to wake up his disciples. Hey, that guy that you were trying to tell him to stop, he's with us. Don't talk. Don't treat him like that. Don't do that. Or else the consequences. And what he's saying is, as terrifying as it would be to be thrown into water and to sink to your death, as terrifying as that sounds, you would prefer that to facing God's wrath. Does it sound like God takes sin seriously? Which actually leads us to the second warning where I want to spend a lot of our time this morning. Note this. You can't afford to get this wrong. Deal with your own sin now. Do it now. Deal with your own sin now. Here's the, here's the command that he tells us, verse 43. He says, if your hand causes you to sin, what are you supposed to do? Cut it off. So it might scare you to know that we are looking for some people that have a skill uh, with a blade. Uh, we're trying to start a new ministry in the church. We never apologize for asking you to volunteer. Okay, no, that's kind of sick. I get it. Uh, this is this sounds awful, doesn't it? Who wants to cut their hand off? Why would anybody do that? Well, the answer he says is because it's better to enter life crippled than keep your hands but go to hell. He's putting a choice before us. What he's saying is here, here's the choice: you can let sin go, or you can deal with it now. You can do the hard thing now, which is not going to be pleasant. It's not going to be fun. This is not going to be easy, and it's going to hurt. But it'll be much easier for you in the end. Or you can do the easy thing now and avoid the pain, avoid the sacrifice. It is going to be much harder in the end. And he gives us such graphic consequences, such scary consequences to help us understand you really don't want to suffer the consequences of your sin. You don't want to, okay? He said, if, if you just let your sin go, don't deal with it. It leads to hell. Can we just talk about that for a minute? That, that word um, hell in the Greek is actually a name. It's the name Gehenna. This is actually a place uh, in Jerusalem. I'm going to show you some Israel pics, okay? Uh, I actually want to put this on a map. Here, here is the city of Jerusalem. And, and, and I know this looks kind of small. You may not be able to tell what's going on, but I really just want you to be able to see that Jerusalem is built up on a hill. You see that it's slanting up there like that? And that on the top is the Temple Mount. That where, that's where today, if you were to go to uh, Jerusalem, you would see the big gold dome of the rock. That is the Temple Mount, and it's down here on the hill. At the bottom, this is the Hinnom Valley. This is known as Gehenna. It's the southwest corner of Jerusalem, right outside of the Dung Gate. And yes, this is, uh, I got a picture of me. Uh, we went and visited hell while we were there in uh, Israel. And I just got to tell you, it was not exactly a very pleasant place, mostly because we were visiting a tomb there. We were actually at the tomb of Annas, uh, Caiaphas's father-in-law, who is the high priest in Jesus' day. And uh, that, that tomb is now uh, being uh, desecrated by a Bedouin who's using it as a horse stall. And uh, so we were like hanging out. There's a whole bunch of like horse manure and flies. It was not a very pleasant place. Okay, That place, Gehenna, 
became a symbol of hell. Why? Because that is the place where the kings of Judah in the Old Testament committed some of the most awful sins. In fact, I want to show this to you. Jeremiah uh, chapter 32 uh, Jeremiah chapter 32, verse 35, this is God declaring judgment on the people of Judah. He says, they, they, the children of Judah, they build the high places of Baal in the valley of the son of Hinnom. That is the Hebrew becomes in Greek Gehenna. That's the valley right there. What They're building the high places. What? To do what? To offer up their sons and daughters to Moloch, though I did not command them, nor did it enter my mind that they should do this abomination to cause Judah to sin. What's crazy is this is not the bad guys. Okay, This is not the pagan kings. This is God's people burning their own kids in the fire as child sacrifices in the very city where they're supposed to be worshiping Yahweh alone. This is awful. And so when the king Josiah comes along, he became he was actually one of the good kings. There weren't very many of them. A king Josiah came along and his Grandpa was King Manasseh, one of the worst that was committing this sin right here in Gehenna. Josiah came along, was trying to reform the nation. He's trying to uh, get rid of, destroy all the altars and get rid of the false gods. And it says in Gehenna, he went there to the valley of Hinnom and he defiled that place so that they wouldn't do that anymore. And so Gehenna actually became a dump. It was the place for throwing dead bodies. It's the place where they would burn trash. So Jesus, when he comes along, he's not calling that place hell. But he's using it symbolically of hell. He's saying it's, it's a place, verse 43, of unquenchable fire. Verse 48, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. This is, this is awful. Wayne Grudem in his systematic theology would define it, uh, hell, as a place of eternal conscious punishment for the wicked. Hell's a place where the wicked are tormented day in and day out forever and ever. I mean, some of you are thinking like, dude, it's Father's Day. Why in the world are we talking about hell? I'm... Okay, so this is just what happens when we, like, we just open up the Bible and we work our way through. This is where we're at. We can't be afraid to just read what God's Word says. I know hell is not a popular doctrine. I know it's not pleasant. And a lot of people are asking the question, and understandably so, is this real? Is hell real? Some people are trying to redefine it right now to say that it's, a, it's just a concept or it's just a symbol. It's not an actual uh, place of eternal judgment like Jesus says it is. Or if it is an actual place of judgment, that it's not eternal, that it's not going to last forever. And I just want to say, like, you just have to hear my heart on this. I understand that. I understand why people would want to do that. This should not be a comfortable doctrine for anybody. Hell is really 
hard to swallow. And I'm not for a moment going to try to pretend like I have all the answers. And quite honestly, we're not going to exhaust this subject here today. And it might raise for you theological questions. It might raise for you some philosophical questions. I am happy to talk with you more about these things. I'm just acknowledging right up front, this is, this is a hard one, okay? But we have to be willing to read the Bible responsibly. And if you want to dismiss it, redefine it, and say that it's not what it says in the Bible, one of the things, and the, probably the biggest thing that you're going to have to deal with is the fact that over and over, Jesus is the one who teaches us of the reality of eternal judgment in hell. So I get like in the, a lot of times when we're trying to dismiss it and say that it's not what we think it is, that we think that we're rescuing God. We think that we're going to make God look better. Quite honestly, if we ignore this, we lose the gospel. We lose the hope of eternity, and we lose our mission for today. What happens is we often frame the question in a way that really betrays our ignorance. I'm sure you've heard this. I'm sure you've thought this. Maybe you've wondered this. How could a loving God... Send people to hell for eternity. How is this okay? Like, how, how come he can't just forgive? Why can't he just sweep it under the rug? I mean, that's what we would do. And what we're really saying in that is if, if God is going to punish people forever, then he would not be just. Because sin is not that big of a deal. Doesn't it seem like the punishment fits the crime? But I think we'd be wrong on both accounts. I, I don't think that we come close to appreciating the horror of our own sin. How evil it is to rebel against a good and a holy God. And, and maybe, I know we take it easy on sin, so maybe this will help us to just remember for just a moment, what, what, what were they doing in Gehenna? What, what was it that was happening there? Why did that place become a place of judgment? What were they doing? Child sacrifice. I stood at a, another altar in a city uh, called Gezer. This is halfway between Jerusalem and one of the port cities uh, in, in Tel Aviv, Joppa. And this was an altar, not to Yahweh. And it was at this archaeological dig that they discovered jars with the burned remains of one-week-old babies and other children. They're sacrificing their kids. They're killing the innocent. We're going to kill someone else so that I could be blessed. Man, you better feel some anger when you look at that. I remember this hit me when we were visiting another site. We were visiting uh, the Temple of Artemis. And this is in the city of Jerash. This is in northern Jordan. i got to tell you, this was an impressive structure. We were climbing all over it, and it was kind of cool, and we were kind of trying to move the pillars there, and we climbed down underneath the temple, and there's some tunnels under there. And I was like, man, this is really cool. We're getting down in these tunnels until our, our teacher explained to us what happened down in those tunnels under the temple. That was the place where all the cult prostitution went on. 
You just think of rampant sexual immorality and, and, and lust, unbridled. And I don't think I have to tell you what happens to women when they have sex. Oftentimes, they get pregnant. And so what would happen is these prostitutes would then take their babies once they delivered and they just take them outside to be exposed to the elements so that they'd die. And, and, and as horrific as that sounds, is this not essentially the same practices that are happening every day in our nation? That we've given ourselves up to lust and sexual immorality like it's no big deal. And we've given up in, even to abortion. That we would take someone else's life so that I could have blessing. And I would say it's probably likely that this stuff has touched our church. And I remember sitting, we were in the, t in, the, in the tunnel underneath there, and I was feeling this like, man, this is awful. I can't believe that somebody would do this. I would never. And then weeping as I left, and I knew I had to take a picture because I would remember this moment. I am no better. Sin is sin. And this is the same sin that is in my heart. And this is why if we begin to understand the horrific nature of our sin, we understand God must punish it. It is right. It is just for Him to do that. And the more we know His holiness, the more closely we come into His presence, we understand and we recognize the severity of our own sin. And the more we can appreciate then the, the grace and the love of Christ in the Gospel. Because the Gospel declares to me what I deserve, but what I get instead. You see, Jesus is not then just trying to tell some made-up ghost stories about an imaginary place just trying to scare people. He knows that hell is real. And I, I realize this is not like a lot of churches, we run away from this, we don't. And there was some abuse. There was a lot of that. The whole turn and burn. But Jesus is not afraid to talk about it because He's warning us of the reality of eternal judgment. And do you not see His mercy in the fact that He would warn us of what's coming? And don't think for a minute that he takes pleasure in this. In fact, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9 says, The Lord is not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And so what he's doing even right now is he's trying to press, impress this urgency. Now, examine yourself. This should lead to introspection where I say, I can't afford to get this wrong. I've got to deal with my own sin. Cut off your hand. Cut off your foot. Tear your eye out. It is better to deal with your sin now than having to suffer the consequences of eternal punishment. Can we just say what the Bible says? One, one pastor says this is it's better to be a pirate. You think about it, you're like, you may end up with an eye patch and a peg leg and a hook. That's going to be a whole lot better than going to hell. But here's the problem. If you'd rather keep your sin, if you'd rather keep your hands and your feet and your eyes and you're unwilling to let it go, that's, it's an indication that you don't love Christ more than your sin. And so in that sense, everyone who goes to hell chooses it. 
C.S. Lewis once said that there are two people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. And if this is the choice that you're going to make, what Jesus is trying to help you understand is that you are doomed to suffer the consequences of that. But don't misunderstand, okay? We need to be really clear. We don't earn eternal life by our actions. He's not suggesting that you can remove sin in your own power just by cutting it off. It doesn't work that way. Like if I just cut my hand off, I'll never sin again. Because the problem's in here. The problem is in our heart. And so the gospel tells us that our sin is removed and we are made righteous before a holy God so that we will not face His eternal judgment. And that happens by blood. It takes blood, but not ours. It's the blood of His Son, Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for us in our place. That's what Tim Keller says, that God found a way to destroy all evil. And He should do that. He found a way to destroy all evil without destroying us. How how did he do that? He sent his son. And his son took our sin on himself. And so God poured out his wrath on his son, Jesus, so that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. What he's saying is you don't have to go to hell. You can have eternal life. You know that you have eternal life. Have you put your trust in Jesus believing that He died for your sin and asking Him to forgive you? He's the only way. He's the only way. But as disciples now, He says, cut off your hand. Cut off your foot. Tear off your eye when it causes us to sin. What, what, what he's not, let's just be really clear. He's not uh, talking about literally maiming ourselves, okay? What he's saying is that those who love and follow Christ are willing to sacrifice anything because they believe that Jesus is better. Take the foot, you can have it. I've got Christ. Don't let anything be more important to you than Him. This is the demand of discipleship that we would hate sin. And we would hate it and anything. We'd sacrifice anything if it would get in the way, if it would be a hindrance to us. Because quite honestly, it, it makes no sense to say, I love Christ, but if it comes down to it, I'd rather have my hand than him. Sin's got to go. What he's trying to say is do whatever you have to do to stop sinning. This is what believers do. Do you know that? This is, this is the reality for those if you do belong to Him, then God's Word says you won't keep on sinning. That's the whole point of the book of 1 John. He's trying to tell it what happens when you really do belong to the family of God. 1 John chapter 3, I want you to see this, verse 9. He says, No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot, he can't, he can't keep on sinning because he's been born of God. True believers stop sinning, not in order to become a son or daughter, but because we are sons and daughters in Christ. Sin is not who you are anymore. And so what Jesus is telling us, he's kind of giving this all-encompassing demand to, to get rid of sin, get rid of all of it. And it might take some 
Radical amputation. What are the sins of your hand? What, what, what are the things that you're doing that you know is not right? With our, with our hands, we, we can steal and we can hurt. We can, we can murder. You're like, I don't do that. I'm, I'm, well, well, think about it. Are you taking things that are really not yours? Are you fudging on your taxes? Are you, are, are you uh, taking little extra benefits from work? Are you taking a paycheck when you're really just being lazy and you're not really earning it? He's trying to get us to think about these things, bring these things to mind so that we would know, is there sin in my life? God, is there, show me. And I may not murder, but Jesus says that murder is an action of the heart. That I would hate somebody. That I, that I would uh, resent them. That I would want to hurt them even with my words. I want them to feel pain. I use jokes to try to put them down. Or that I would exclude people, ignore them. What about your feet? Where are you going that's wrong? Are the places that you're going that you know you shouldn't? Spots of temptation or hanging out with friends that you know are influencing you to sin? Or where are you not going where you know you should? Are you filling up your schedule so full of your own pursuits that you end up just neglecting to go be with the body of Christ? The, the, the Sunday morning small group opportunities to pray, opportunities to serve, kind of take a back seat to what I got going on and the things that I really want to do? Am I not going intentionally to the people around me with this message of the gospel? What about sins of the eyes? What, what, are, you, what are you looking at? Porn? Don't say it's like, well, I'm not, I'm not looking at the hard stuff. Any of that. Are you have wandering eyes or reading sexually arousing material? Is your Netflix queue filled with immorality? Even if you would think it's not that big. It's, you know, it's kind of subtle. Or are eyes of coveting? Do, do, are you looking around and, and, and comparing your stuff and your lifestyle to everybody else and what they have and the way they live? and Are you regularly shopping and buying and spending for your wants and just dissatisfied with what you have? Here's what he's saying. No matter what it is for you, no matter what it is for you, any sin, cut it off. Get rid of it. It leads to destruction. Get into God's Word. Confess. Be honest with other believers. Don't let it stay. It doesn't belong. Do you feel this warning from Jesus? What he's trying to help you understand is if you let it go, it's dangerous. It's going to hurt you. And I know that in the moment, it's so much easier to not deal with it. Just let it go. I don't want to confess that. I don't want, to have, I don't want anybody else to know. I don't want to have to admit what I've been doing, and I certainly don't want to have to sacrifice, or I don't want to deal with any consequences right now, so I'll just delay that. But in the end, he's saying it leads to death. And so the great Puritan preacher John Owen would say it like this, Be always at it whilst you live. Cease not a day from this work. Be killing sin, or it will be killing you. Can I just say, because of God's wrath, we can know his mercy. And it's actually, God's word says, it's his kindness that would beckon us out of the shadows into repentance and into his glorious light. Don't wait. You can't afford to get this wrong. Deal with your sin now.
Let me give you quickly one last warning we see here in verses 49 and 50. Don't lose your unity when suffering. So um, these verses might seem a little random, um, but these thoughts are actually kind of connected through some common words, this word fire, the word salt. So it's possible that these are phrases that Jesus had spoken at different times, but it's still wrapping up this discussion that he's having on discipleship. So verse 49, he says, For everyone, everyone will be salted with fire. Now that fire, he's not talking about um, the fires of hell, okay? He's not saying that everybody's going to hell. That fire there is the fire of suffering which is a reality for all the followers of Jesus. Especially you think about Mark's audience. He's, he's likely writing this book to the believers in the city of Rome who are undergoing uh, persecution. He says everyone's going to be salted with fire. Now, salt and fire were actually uh, used in the sacrificial system. You can read about this in the Old Testament, Leviticus chapter 1 and uh, chapter 2. He's talking about sacrifice. So he's trying to help us understand in all of this. is Listen, listen, listen. Following Jesus is going to cost you. It might cost you a hand. It might cost you a foot. It might cost you an... It might cost you your life. But it's a sacrifice. He says the salt is actually a good thing. But what are we going to do if the salt loses its saltiness? How's it going to make it salty again? So have salt in yourself and live at peace with one another. So this is kind of the conclusion of this lesson that he's been teaching them on discipleship. And remember why this started. He's teaching them because they started fighting with each other about who was the greatest. Jesus is saying, listen, listen. Salt gives flavor. It gives distinction. Do you know what stands out? Do you know what the distinction is? In believers, yeah, it's our, the peace that we have with one another. It's our unity. It's our love. So he's saying, we're going into battle together. We're not fighting each other. We're fighting with each other. We're fighting the sin that would, in our lives that would try to destroy us, and we're knowing that we're also going to be suffering some persecution. And in that suffering, our lives can actually become a sacrifice that is really pleasing to Christ. And so in all of this, he's laying this out. It's it's not easy being a disciple, but these warnings ought to drive us to humility. You can't afford to get this wrong. And guess what? You can't afford to do this one on your own either. You need the church. Because if you're only thinking about yourself, then you end up hurting other people and causing them to sin. If you're only looking out for yourself, then you're going to let sin go and Avoid the pain and avoid any sacrifice and not deal with it. He's trying to help us understand, yes, the cost of following Jesus is high, but let the church keep urging you and pressing you on to pursue him, knowing that suffering for Christ is way better than suffering for your sin. And on a day like today, can I just say, dads, can we lead the way on this? Can we be the first ones that would hold up God's word and get on our knees and confess and recognize our need for repentance and point our families, help point the church 
to the glory of Christ in the gospel. He wants you to live with him for all of eternity. Let's pray. I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray for you, okay? Because some of you, maybe today, um, I'm not trying to be manipulative in any sense, but I think it would be wrong of us to read the warnings of Scripture and not give you an opportunity to respond to that. Because some of you may be realizing right now that your sins are not forgiven. That you've not trusted in Jesus to save you. I just got to tell you, there's no other way, okay? And if that would be you, then I would just urge you right now, if you know that you need to trust Jesus to save you, would you pray to him? Just pray, right? Right where you're at. And confess that you know that you're a sinner. You know what you deserve is judgment. But that you believe that Jesus died on the cross for you. That he died in your place. So that you could have eternal life. And if you've done that, you've trusted in Jesus for salvation. You know you're saved. Maybe this passage has become a warning for you because you know you've got sin in your life that you've not dealt with. And I just urge you right now, start taking care of that. Let's do some business with God. And you just spend a moment confessing that, asking Him to forgive you. I know the glorious news of the gospel is that if you will confess your sin, He is faithful and He is just to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He's forgiven. We praise God for the gospel. Father, we love you. And these are never easy things for us to read about. But Lord, this encourages us to examine our own lives and be willing to admit where we need you. So Lord, we confess our dependence. We confess that we are incapable. We can't clean ourselves up. I can't fix this, but you can. And thank you that you forgive us. Lord, I hate thinking about hell, but I pray that it would help us appreciate the glory of Christ all the more, what you promised us. I pray that it would motivate our hearts to live on mission so that others would come to know you and love you that you would get all the glory in all of it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.